Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra ortolia Baird, and I'm joined today with great pleasure by Marnie Hughes-Warrington and Auntie Anne Martin about their book, Big and Little Histories, Sizing Up Ethics in Historiography, which is published by Routledge in 2021. Marnie and Auntie, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to talk about this book today. Thank you. A very warm welcome to you too. Thank you so much. Uh, Both can of I you... acknowledge, Alexandra, yes, that I'm recording here from the Ghana country? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm coming to you from Ghana country in the Adelaide Plains uh, in Australia. And Auntie? And I'm coming to you from the land of the Ngunnawal people in the Australian Capital ter- Territory in Canberra. Could I just ask you both to to tell us a little bit about yourselves um, and your backgrounds and and how you came to collaborate um, on this book together, which is um, a a form of collaboration that um, is perhaps a little bit unusual in some respects um, for a book on on ethics and historiography. Would you like me to go first, Auntie? Yes, please. Okay, so my name is Marnie Hughes-Warrington and I'm a professor and I'm the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research and Enterprise at the University of South Australia. Uh, I was born in Victoria but raised in Tasmania and as a student in Tasmania I was taught that there were no Aboriginal people and so I've always viewed history as a very powerful place that has the ability to talk to the present as well as to the future. I studied philosophy and, undergra- and history as an undergraduate and discovered one day that you we were studying the same topic in both subjects and was really amazed by that and went and told my lecturer, gosh, we're studying imagination in both history and in philosophy. Isn't that incredible? And he said, yeah, it's a field called historiography or philosophy of history. And um, here's some books on it. And he pulled some books off his shelf and gave them to me. And he said, you can have them because nobody reads these. (laughs) So I took them away and I read them. And I thought, this is great. This is a great way of combining two subjects that I love. And so I decided that I would study historiography or philosophy of history or theory of history. It's got lots of different names uh, for my honours degree. And then I was very fortunate to win a Rhodes Scholarship to go to Oxford uh, to study philosophy of history there. Um, And it was an amazing experience. I worked on the papers of R.G. Collingwood and wrote my thesis on him. I thought it was just an extraordinary experience. It seemed, though, that you know, it was a pretty risky decision to choose to study these two fields together because, um, you know, you go to conferences and I didn't see very many women there in the field and I saw a lot of older scholars. I did see some younger ones, but a lot of older scholars. And I thought for a long time, gosh, there's not going to be uh, much opportunity or any jobs or anything that I can do in this space. Will people be interested in what I do? So I worried for quite a while that this was not a good decision to study in this field. But I have to say that I think it's one of the best choices I've ever made in my life because people are profoundly interested in history, not just within universities, but history teachers, the general public. Every taxi driver wants to ask me about history. Everyone's passionate about history. So I think it's just a great choice. I've written a number of books on the theory of history. 
Um, I generally write alone, which is not unusual in the field. But the, the story of this book is a little unusual, and it starts with the, the story of a flood and the destruction of the humanities collection in the Chifley Library at the Australian National University, where I was working at the time. And um, pretty much all of the history books were destroyed. And I was pretty devastated by the event. And it struck me afterwards that I really missed um, not just what was in those books, the ideas, but the very feel of them. Some of them were really heavy, some little, some big. And so I went on a journey around the world to, to try and understand why histories came in different sizes and found the answer in ethics. I went all around the world and then I discovered that actually I hadn't answered the most important question, which was, is the ethics that we study in history connected with just humans or is it connected with country, with animals? And that brought me back to, having gone all around the world, back to a, a door about 100 metres away from my office, and that was the door of Auntie Anne Martin. And we call her Auntie because she's revered in Australia. She's an incredible person, recognised for her incredible talents, her seniority, her gener generosity. I knocked on Auntie's door and said, I know a lot about history, but I don't know what I should know and what I ought to know about um, how Aboriginal people think about history. Can you help me and can you teach me? And she opened the door. And I'll hand it over to you, Auntie. Oh, thanks so much, Marnie. Um, I come from a little community in Sydney called La Perouse, which is on the shores of Botany Bay. And um, I grew up in a very small Aboriginal community. I was one of the first ones in my family and community to go to university. And um, that was because I won a scholarship and I studied up in the Northern Territory at um, what used to be the Darwin Institute of Technology that changed to the Northern Territory University that became Charles Darwin University. And my degree came out of uh, the University of Queensland. So go figure how that all happened. But um, when, I when I began to study, I, I, I looked at um, Australian history and in particular uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history. And I spent a lot of time stuck in the archives up in the Territory. And I can honestly say that when I read through many of the journals and um, the separation of families, children taken away, and the policies that were in place during those times, which also affected my family, I, I was just beside myself and it, it was a form of grief that I, I, I faced when I, when I read what, what, what was happening then, what was continuing to happen now and I had to think how do we change this? How do we look at the past? How do we move forward to change the pathways for those coming behind us? And I found it in um, looking at how do we grow young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership and hence why I took up a role um, in firstly at UNSW then at ANU as the director of uh, the Jabal Indigenous Higher Education Centre and I looked at the importance of not research only those things I looked at the first principles of the exercise at that university which were the students. 
it was now my responsibility after having a, a journey through uni myself with six kids to pay it forward to the next generations. And it was there at the ANU that um, I met Marnie. Uh, and if you ever get a chance to walk into uh, a lecture theatre and listen to Marnie, then you walk out and you're just shaking your head with wonder because um, she changed my world and she opened up my eyes to many, many things around me. And I loved when we could sit down and just talk. And, you know, who knows what, where those conversations were going to take us. But in that conversation, I've ended up here with Marnie. And uh, for that, I feel incredibly blessed because as the grandmother of 18 grandkids, who would have thought that somebody like Marnie would knock on my door? Accolades indeed. The book is is absolutely fantastic. I had such a great time um, reading it, but I thought we might start by talking a little bit about the structure of it before we we kind of dive into thinking about some of the arguments and and the and the content because it has a really really interesting structure and it groups together thinkers from across disciplines as well as from across time and from across space. So I was wondering if you could both perhaps tell us a little bit about how and why you use this framework and what you think it it lends um, to the kind of the book and to, to readers who are really, I guess, coming to this perhaps new to this idea of ethics and historiography. Thanks. I'll, I'll kick off and then I'll hand over to Auntie to talk about Chapter 10, if you don't mind, Auntie, if that works for you. Okay, so there were, there were a couple of things that I had in my mind when I was trying to put the book together and I, I recast the structure a few times to try to get it to work um, and if there's a moral to the story rewrite your books three or four times <laughs> just to get the structure to work. There were two, two things I was conscious that I needed to do. The first is I had been aware that most of the conversations about ethics in historiography were really talking about the relationship between an historian and an individual and I wanted to really scale up that story and not just look at that relationship, which is really critical, and that relationship between a, a person who's living or a person who's no longer living, and that's a really important one that's often bound by formal ethics processes. So I was conscious that most of the writing was on that scale and really powerful and very helpful, but I wanted to shift scales. And so I, I did that in two ways. The first is I, I looked back to books like Peter Singer's Practical Ethics, and looked at that as a kind of introduction to ethics, which was trying to get people to think more broadly about how ethics is a practical subject and touches on lots of different things. And so I thought it would be good for me to get the book to touch on lots of different topics to help broaden out and, and help readers to see that what they were thinking about, what they were grappling with, were genuinely really interesting questions so that they wouldn't pick up the book and think, oh, my questions are not in here, it's not relevant to me. So I wanted to get that broad frame of mind, but not just focus on utilitarian ethics that Peter Singer had done. So that was the first decision that I wanted to really show people that over time, um, because ethics is not a kind of tick box activity with a really strict kind of blueprint where you do things exactly the same every time, that histories are different. Um, and I describe it in the book as, you know, they're not, they're not replicated they're not turned out perfectly every time. They're, they're beautiful creations by human beings, uh, and in some cases ants and, and robots. They're talked about in the book. 
they produce these things and they're all slightly different. Um, and that's because the person that's making them or the thing that's making them or the person that's making them is wanting to think through some pretty different ethical questions. And over time, there's been a lot of varieties of histories as a consequence. So that's the first thing I wanted to, to emphasise was that you should expect there to be lots of different histories. And that's a good thing, a good thing for ethical reasons. The second thing I wanted to do was to show that the book is not just an abstract thing, that ethics is practical and it touches on our lives. And so I wanted to be a bit a little brave and write a bit about myself in the book. And so you find that every chapter opens with a little story about me and some of the questions that I've encountered as I've travelled around the world and thought about things. And so there's a scale shift in every chapter from a little micro moment that I've been involved in through to a much bigger theoretical discussion going on in those chapters. So it's a deliberately broadening book. It's meant to be generative. It's meant to show people that over time there will be new and different ethical theories. And it's, it's designed to show people that ethics is not distant to who we are as history makers, as history readers. It's, it's who we are that makes good histories. So, Auntie, if I wonder if I can hand over to you, because I think Chapter 10 was a very, very special story. Thanks, Barney. I, when we look at um, the way we tell stories, it's more often than not that people take those stories and change the whole narrative of what it's all about. I'm not talking about our own families. I'm talking about the ones that parachute into our, our homes, our communities, uh, take away uh, your knowledge and there is nothing there that's in return. And that is an ethical dilemma that people have. Sitting down with Marnie, it was, it was just storytelling and to understand that our storytelling is, comes from such, a, such ancient times and if we think about our song lines that crisscross this country where the stories are forever changing but so much the same, these are the stories that are passed down generations upon generations. And if, you, if I think about my stories today, you know, I, it was funny because in thinking about the book today, I, I had a, a message from my, my daughter. My grandson had gone diving and he caught two lobsters in, in Botany Bay and all I, all I could see then was not my grandson with those two lobsters, but my grandfather and my uncles. And these were the stories of, you know, feeding us, you know, from the bounty of, of the sea. There is much that has changed now, but our stories are ever evolving. But I think that with um, what Marnie speaks about and the importance of, she talks about, you know, ourselves, you know, in our stories and quite often we, we don't really think about that we're a part of, you know, building that, that next part of history for, you know, my grandchildren and my grandchildren's grandchildren. You know, how will I be remembered for what, you know, what things that I did? And then I realised that 
most of the time it's just accidental kind of um, accidental kind of moments, and it's it's very rare that you get. It has been very rare in my lifetime that I have had somebody that has sat down and asked about our stories, looked at the importance of our languages, recognised the the damage that has been caused through colonisation, but also knowing that you can't change what has gone before, but you you certainly build on the future. And um, when Marnie talks about, you know, too many Captain Cooks, you know, well, I come from a place in La Perouse where it was, you know, all about Captain Cook, Captain La Perouse. Um, This was the history that I grew up with out there. We were subjected to a history that was not our narrative of our community, but one that was forced upon us through um, an education system that didn't look at Aboriginal history as being anything that was of importance, and I'm talking about the 50s and the 60s. It's changing, but um, it's a slow burn. So if I look at the chapter with, with Marnie on Indigenous histories, place and ethics, I know that it's going to um, it's going to include knowledge that is um, really important to us. It's it looks at when you think about people like Jacqueline Troy with you know um, resurrecting or you know being one of the early ones you know to resurrect the, the, the language of the Eora people in Sydney and that was many groups there. Um, it is just amazing because if we look at Hebrew that had to become a, a learned language again, we have hundreds of languages that are now being resurrected across our country and um, that's that's something that was taken away from us. So it's been a, a, a long journey and I think that what Marnie has done in this in this chapter, she's she made me sit back and revisit things, things that I'd shut off and um, I'm just very, very um, just Really, really honoured that that Marnie has done this in this way, and know that as she moves forward with her next projects, she's going to she's going to do more, which is going to be, you know, it's she's make remaking our history in in a in a positive way. Can you see, Alexandra, why I want to um, write with Auntie when she she starts to talk? Um, you begin to understand just how extraordinary Aboriginal history is, Aboriginal histories and languages are in Australia. And if we were to just understand how special they are, if the world could appreciate this, this would be one of the greatest gifts that Australia could give to the world. Um, so for me to be able to sit at the table with auntie and for her to talk and be relaxed because I take it very seriously that that knowledge is not to be stolen or taken. It's not a possession. It's one with country. Um, to have somebody be so generous in doing that with you, uh, if, if it's reflected what Anne wanted, auntie wanted, it's because I'm beginning to learn 
and I'm still learning. And the great thing about philosophers, Alexandra, is that we, we learn until the day we die. So I think it's just a great, it's a phenomenal privilege and Auntie will join me for my next monograph and I think that's really really, really critical. That's that's amazing that such a, a strong collaboration has, has come from this. And, you know, it on so many levels, you know, what Auntie's speaking about, you know, echoes throughout the book, but also this this idea of the personal and the individual, because, you know, Marnie, you've brought up this issue of scale, which is fundamental to the book, but it is also personal, um, as you've kind of, you've both brought up. And I think that that's a very, very important and interesting element um, of this book that especially, you know, um, perhaps younger readers, but also, you know, established historians perhaps might think about, um, again, is, you know, the the involvement of self in the types of histories that we're writing um, and how that really shapes um, our own ethics as well as the ethics of the discipline more generally. But um, to kind of give listeners, you know, a broader picture, you know, this book covers a huge amount of ground. It's got, it goes from collective biographies and utilitarian ethics to global histories and cosmopolitan ethics, micro histories, social contract ethics. It has figures like Ernst Gombrich and David Hume. It has Nehru, Martha Nussbaum, Natalie Zimon Davis, Herodotus, Fan Yi. The list just goes on. It really is um, encyclopedic in in some ways. But I'd like, Marnie, if we could just to, to talk about Aristotle and, and ethos, because I think this is a really important um, kind of starting point in the book. And I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about why Aristotle is so important for thinking about relation, the relationship between history and, and ethics that you are arguing for in the book. Thank you so much for the question. And um, I've been quite interested in Aristotle for a while, and my last book is on the role of wonder in the writing of history, and it started with Aristotle. Uh, and I've got a kind of project in my mind where I'm unpicking whether Aristotle one of me, might be one of the greatest history makers who never wrote a history, which is so interesting, how important his thought has been, not all over the world, but certainly shaping thought. He has, he has a couple of things to say about ethics that I think are really critical. Um, the first I've, I've mentioned, which is it's practical. It's not a theoretical subject. It's something that should shape what we do every day. And I think we can forget that. And I think it's really critical that when we make theory about history, that it should be to help people to make decisions, to engage in activities. So that's critical. The second thing he says in both the Eudemian ethics and the Nicomachean ethics is that, he, that, that ethics is not precise. And he talks about the difference between a mathematician and a carpenter when he's talking about them. He says, look, a mathematician has a, has a notion of precision and they will draw things with great precision, whereas a carpenter will make a, a, you know, an angle using wood um, and it will look good, but it will not be to the same level of precision, but it's still the right thing for the carpenter to do. And I was really intrigued by this idea because, um, and I can disclose, <laughs> Alexandra, I'm married to the, the CEO of the National Measurement Institute. He's uh, <laughs> my husband, Bruce Warrington. He measures things really precisely. And I was really intrigued to know why we, histories aren't the same size, why they aren't exactly the same, why we allow them to be different and why they're different. And, and the answer was not just about narrative and storytelling. My argument in the book is that this reflects ethical nature of history making and that this notion that Aristotle has, and he's not the only one globally, that ethics is of our own making. And we don't just make it once. We make it and we remake it 
over and over again in our own lives as individuals and as groups of people. And, and he talks about uh, bigger things, bigger ethics and little ethics. So the ethics of small things aggregating up to big things. And so I was interested in the notion of through our lives, we revisit ethical questions over and over again, more or less explicitly, but we also are part of groups. And so our ethical decisions are sometimes our own and sometimes they reflect groups. So I wanted to really unpick this idea and that led me to explore the idea that ethics in histories is often expressed through the scales of histories. So they can be really big, they can be little, they can be about a second in time, they can be about 14 billion years, they can be about one tiny place on earth or they can be about the universe. And that's what I really wanted to unpick. So the variety of the histories in the book is deliberately broad to emphasize that this is not just good storytelling, it's the notion of ethos, practicing, revisiting, thinking through things for ourselves, feeling things. So not just a rational activity in the sense of just thinking, but feeling things. So the chapter on 9-11, for instance, I did want to express in the opening how uncomfortable I felt like visiting Ground Zero that it felt horrible and I didn't want to go there. I want people to know that ethics is not just what we think, but as historians, we have to deal with really uncomfortable feelings. And sometimes that can make us even feel like we don't want to go places, we don't want to do things. So that powerful idea that he's expressed has generated this entire book, which I'm really thrilled, which I'm really thrilled about. Oh, I think we have a we have a thing on the line, right? Um, thank you so much, Marnie. I guess because I mean, it's it, the Aristotle kind of um, framework for this is is really it's it's so interesting to kind of to rethink Aristotle, right? So a lot of the people who are kind of thinking about historiography obviously are familiar with Aristotle, but I think you're you're pushing it in a slightly different um, direction there. But what I'd like to do is to kind of skip ahead, as you've mentioned. There's you know huge content in the book, but. I'd like to focus on the on the final three um, chapters, which are respectively called Big History and Information Ethics, Non-Human Histories and Entanglement Ethics. Um, and as Auntie has already kind of uh, brought up slightly, but I'm, we're certainly going to come back to, is Indigenous Histories and Place Ethics. Um, and I, I want to pick up on these because they, they might be slightly less familiar to listeners um, and uh, they're also, from a very selfish kind of personal perspective, these are certainly things that I have found very, very interesting in the book. So I'd like to maybe start with the first of these, which is um, about big histories and information ethics. And I was wondering if you both might just tell us a little bit about, well, what can history makers learn from these big, often data-driven histories and, and also information ethics? How does that resound um, with perhaps your own research and your understanding of, of ethics and also ethos? Yeah, so um, I have been very privileged to know David Christian for a very long time. He's the progenitor of big history and, in fact, taught big history at Macquarie University for close to a decade. And just found the experience incredibly interesting because if you say to somebody, okay, I'm going to give you a page to write a history and um, I'll give you a page to write about a second in history and people go, oh, I feel very comfortable with that. But if I said to you, I'm going to give you a page, Alexandra, and you, can, and you have to write about 14 billion years in that page, you'd go, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. No, I need, I need the details. I need to do things. So big history is really interesting because – in scaling up like that, the argument that big historians are making, like David Christian, is saying when you change a scale reference, you 
people think that you lose the details and people get really, really worried that if you write a really big scale history, that you lose sight of really important things like the Holocaust or the, um, the ways in which individuals have been treated through time. And somehow those big histories are less ethical as a consequence. Interestingly enough, when you look at big history, this notion of scaling up to writing this really big history, David Christian makes this argument, and I, and I repeat it in that chapter, to say, look, when you scale up, you see different things. You absolutely see different things. You see, for instance, this immense story of entropy, of the shaping of information, of energy being moved around, and you see a major environmental history. For the, for the earth in which human beings play a really incredibly important part. And so big history is not a replacement for smaller scale histories, but it's showing us something different because it's like taking a different zoom angle with your camera and seeing things slightly differently. And David Christian uses analogies like, you know, uh, getting a map at a different scale or refocusing your camera. Uh, and in the book I talk about, you know, you get up in a plane and you see things differently and uh, Auntie will talk about that in just a moment because she told me once to look down and it was really important. So I wanted to look at that and I was trying to think what kind of ethics could help us to unpick this and there's this new form of ethics called information ethics um, where it's argued by a number of people to say, well, when we, when we work with computers and we work with information systems, we're dealing with a world that's drowning in information. How do we deal with that? Well, we have to train computers and ourselves to abstract up. So we have to structure our thinking and use abstractions uh, in order to think about things. And so the, the chapter really looks at whether there's a, a form of logic or a form of philosophy or a form of ethics that can help us to navigate a world that's drowning and information and help us to say that sometimes it, you do need to scale up. But when you do scale up, interestingly enough, and that's the argument of the chapter, you don't always scale up evenly. Um, because the information that you use to scale up, and let's take an example, Google Books, they've scanned a lot of books globally, which is fabulous. If I were to begin to search those books, I could do some really quick work and find out keywords using an n-gram. I can do that, and I can use that, and I can scale up, and I can say something about a lot of books really quickly. The problem is that not every book has been scanned. So the argument of that chapter is to say, you certainly can abstract up, you can abstract information up. But information scanning and availability is not neutral. That some parts of the world, their literature, their histories are not captured in digital form. And so if I want to create a big history, I'm going to have some gaps. And so the final part of that chapter talks about the need for us to be aware that information computers are not neutral. They're not neutral at little scale when it, computers make or guide decisions about me as an individual. But computers are also not neutral when they tell big stories about the globe. But, Auntie, I wonder if you can tell the story about uh, when we were on a plane to Alice Springs together, because I think it's a really important story. <laughs> oh, thanks, Marnie. Marnie and I had taken a trip to the Northern Territory, and um, we had taken off from um, Alice Springs. and. Um, if you've ever been in a plane flying over central Australia and you look down and we think about song lines and you think about the journeys that, that Aboriginal people have have made, they've crisscrossed, you know, these ancient lands for thousands upon thousands of years. And if you look down, you see astonishing beauty. 
So here was Marnie sitting up in the plane, head buried once again um, in her laptop, um, just totally unaware of everything around her because that's Marnie. And I got up and I walked up and I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, look down. And sometimes we can we, we talk about walking country, feeling country, understanding what it means. But when you look down on country, there is such a sense of awe and beauty. And in that awe and beauty are the the genesis of our of our stories, of where we started, of where we're going. And uh, I wanted money to um, to see and feel what I have always felt each time I have got to look out of a window and see something new each and every time. And she looked down and I think it was a, um, I think it was a bit of a, a, an epiphany to, 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 to Marnie to look down and you will look at Aboriginal art and sometimes you'll see these amazing landscapes, you know, on canvas. Well, this wasn't on canvas. This, this is the stories that those that those amazing artists have been able through memories and histories, been able to put together onto onto a canvas. But here we were looking at, you know, the 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 ultimate uh, camp. Uh, canvas this is country and um, let's let's not forget it and um, Marnie has continued looking down <laughs> I'm just I've got the biggest smile on my face Alexandra because you could see that uh, you know auntie's a very wise woman and um, I was I've learned from her that you can be smart but not wise you can read lots and lots of books in your life but <laughs> you can know you don't know a lot of things and when you look down, you see things differently. You see it at scale. Ernst Gombrich said the same thing in his little history of the world, that he felt like he was flying in a plane over things and seeing things differently. And I think that's what big history is asking us to do. Sometimes you need to change your angle, your, your level of zoom to see things differently. And you then have a, a shift then in, in the following chapter to really thinking about that kind of perspective even more differently. And that's that's something about non-human histories because, I mean, we do often have a very human focus in our histories, don't we? And so you look at these non-human histories and what you call entanglement ethics. And I was wondering if maybe you could both just give us a couple of, of examples of this strain of historical research and, and what they really offer because I think this is another you know perfect example of where aunties uh, knowledge and wisdom actually has clearly had a, a profound effect on thinking about um, the nature and kind of subjectivities of history. Yeah, look, it, 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 that chapter on big history, I was so interested in the fact that, that people can have confidence in information sets and that they can, what we call, they can engage in distant reading, they can make global data sets, they can make the history of the world using data. And that the, the coverage of that data is so uneven. And as I was writing that chapter, I became more and more conscious that some of the, the patches that, that were not being acknowledged were those of Indigenous people and their histories um, because they might not be written down. They might be oral histories or they could be painted or they could be thought about differently. And that led on to 
the chapter where I was beginning to trying to wonder and to entangle, re-entangle uh, the relationship between human beings and the country that they're part of, um, physical landscape, space, country, the words that we might use to describe it, but also the non-human entities that are with us, uh, whether they're living or non-living. So the chapter opens with my sister's beautiful dog <laughs> who attended the book launch via Zoom this week, which was fabulous <laughs> to see the dog, um, and then unpicks and starts to ask the question and say, well, we write histories about animals a lot and we write histories about chocolate and about fish and about things, but they're often described as consumption histories. We write histories about things that are useful to us, things that we use, things that we eat, things that we, you know, we um, domesticate. And then I, you know, really got interested. There was some research where people say, well, did animals, did we domesticate animals or did they domesticate us? And so the question begins to unravel in that chapter as I begin to look and say, well, okay, if animals domesticated us, uh, then there's some other historians that have argued, well, maybe the weeds were the real explorers when the world was being settled in the settler societies, the dandelions went ahead of the people on horseback. Maybe the weeds were the ones that were actually the leaders of the story there, that they were out there, they were part of the colonising story too. So I just got really interested in unpicking and looking at some of the theory about, for instance, the commingling of DNA when you hang around with you know, uh, non-human entities, how we're connected with one another, whether some of the things that happen to us as human beings have a big influence on the world, which, you know, there's a great big interest in the Anthropocene. So lots of interest in that kind of space. And then as, as my, my friends have said, you just get more and more radical as you go when you're writing. I was really intrigued by the idea about whether non-human entities can write histories. And so I give a couple of examples in the chapter where Computer scientists uh, have used the behavior of ants or dragonflies to make algorithms to select information. And it's possible, Alexandra, that, um, you know, computer recommendation systems like Netflix, which recommend films on the basis of our browsing history, could be using algorithms that are actually based on the behavior of insects or animals. And so I asked the question, could you write a history using an ant colony algorithm? What would it look like? How would it turn out? And that led to, you know, me wondering about non-artificial um, so agents, so computers, you know, uh, cyborgs, uh, and also robots, whether they can write histories as well and whether they'll be able to. And that's the topic of the book that I've just started work on. So I was really interested in that and then brought it, I was very excited, but then pulled it back to Auntie's question of look down, see the country that you're on. And so the, the chapter really ends with me looking at the story of Bobby the dog, which Levinas talks about in his experience of being in a concentration camp, that the dog was the only Kantian in Europe. He talks about the dog um, providing joy, recognising him for being a valuable human being. And I asked the question in the, in the end of that chapter, uh, are we assuming that the angel of history that Walter Benjamin talks about, are we assuming that that angel is a human or a metahuman or is the angel of history a dog? Is it Bobby the dog? That's the angel of history. Uh, or like Deborah Bird Rose, um, who sadly has passed, who asked, is the angel of history a dingo, an Australian dog that's both revered as special in Australia, but also treated simultaneously as a pest, as a nuisance. So both hunted, 
but also revered in that space and a very powerful image. So the, the chapter ends by asking the question, have we just made an assumption about the angel of history and have we assumed that ethics is just about us? So Auntie talking about the interconnection of country um, and everything being connected um, pulled me back to that point. I was excited about robots, absolutely excited about algorithms, but wanted to come back and, and see that this fundamental question about whether the ethics of history was just about people was, you know, needed to be unpicked and rethought through. So, Auntie, I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit more about your sense of country because I just think this is so important. Well, when you we think about, you know, what, what uh, Jebra has written about. And if we look at, um, if we look to the skies, if we look to the stories that that our elders have have, um, passed on throughout the ages about the stars and the formations and the names that we have, um, it's it's really quite amazing. Um, We currently have a number of, Indigenous astronomers, young people coming through here in Australia. And what I'm loving is the fact that they're taking this ancient knowledge of the stars, the stories that have been told, that are part of our song lines, and now they are passing that on to other 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 colleagues that um we may have been a bit hesitant to think that, you know, um, there could be history in or profound history in, you know, what we call the black skies. And um, I just think that um, if we look at, if we think about things like our emus, our kangaroos, our dingoes, all of our native animals and how they are intertwined in our stories, um, if we walk through a, a, a gallery to see these images, you know, painted on 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 the walls of of um, of rock, you know, our, our ancient rock art, it just um, it just changes your your it just changes your your sense of of time and place. But it also you also understand that what is there is still now. Um, but I just, I just love, I just love at this point in time that these stories that had been kept so siloed for so long because people really weren't that interested are now are now known. I mean, there sometimes is sadness when our history is destroyed, which happened recently in Western Australia where. A mining company blew up um, an incredible, an incredible sacred site, and in that site was something that could never come back. Um, galleries of of ancient, ancient images, which um, were a timeline. They're now gone forever, but they are still, you know, in the memories of of of. People, so the stories will be passed on continually, but I just feel um, I, f- I sometimes feel a sense of um, bitterness 
that the stories that are put on a canvas which which speak about you know our, the our history with with um, how people lived uh, how they you know the importance of bush tucker bush sham um, you know how to find the honey ants how to to follow the the bees to the sugar bag um, this a lot of this is now um, it, it it's there it's happening but to keep it still people need to understand the importance of respecting the country that we we walk upon to look up into the skies and know that up there our ancestors are not just looking down on us they are protecting us and if we go out and it's a starry night and you know where to look you can see that old man emu you can see the stories that are being passed on to you as a child. And whilst they're kind of muddled a little bit in your head, um, they're now being recorded in the most formal way and we are now educating others about the importance of, you know, black astronomy. It's just, um, just amazing. And Auntie, you've really you've really um, preempted what something I wanted to ask you both actually about, and that's that's really thinking about chronology and time, because for so many historians, you know, the sense of chronology is so fundamental; it's central to to kind of history making. But you know, time and chronology in this this very Western fashion are not central elements of Aboriginal concepts of history or history making. And so, I was wondering, Auntie, if you could you could kind of enlighten listeners a little bit about. Um, this understanding of history and, and knowledge and, and what then perhaps, Marnie, you could then expand and say, you know, what does this give us? What does this, you know, negation of this this kind of Western chronology give us in terms of thinking about ethics and, and history? If I were, if I were the young, well, it seems like a long time ago, the young woman that stepped into a university and uh, was, you know, um, studying the text that I was directed to study about um, uh, Aboriginal history. Um, it was history, a, a lot of it was written in a way that it was um, incredibly damaging. It was, it was damaging for me as a young woman to, to read uh, the history of dispossession, of... Um, of massacres, of the removal of children, of things that went on up into the 70s. But then came along uh, historians that started to think differently about, about Aboriginal histories, people that actually wrote about the, the frontier wars through the lens of Aboriginal people. The, the stories that they began to tell were based on the oral histories that, that had been shared with them because trust had been engendered with, with so many of um, so many of these people who were, were very elderly but were the keepers of the stories. And um, our histories... 
Our histories were drawn from from journals that were that were that were put that were based on a harshness that no one race of people should ever have to face. You know, from the day the boats sailed, you know, into in through the heads, um, what began? You know, we're going to have a what was it? You know, we're going to have a great dialogue with you know these Aboriginal people on the shores of um, Sydney Harbour or Botany Bay or where, wherever. That was five minutes, and then we had we had decades of trying to wipe out a whole race of people, and this. This to me has been a something that, that that has been a big challenge for me to, to face throughout the years each time I ste- stepped into you know the archives and, and looked at these things because our histories were written from uh, you know they were written by white people and they were just fact of the matter and um, it, it was it was a cruel a cruel and and heartless history which really when you think about it carried has carried on up until you know recent recent times and um, our histories are not we're not seen to be important at the end of the day our, our histories were there to be wiped from the face of country I would say that um, there was a purpose in place not to have our histories recorded through a, through the lens of a, a of um, a, a, or an Aboriginal narrative, our our history um, our history was in the early days was um, if I if I if I really want to be honest, it was based on it was based on a, a form of genocide. And um, they failed. We are here. We are thriving. But imagine if we have people like Marnie and that back then that actually got to sit down with people and write the stories the way that they they needed to be written. Um, very very fractured, very broken history where you know. Our ancestors fought for survival and, you know, through the grace of their fighting, you know, I, I am here today. You're still here. You've got a strong voice, Auntie. It's fabulous. Thank you both so much. Okay. Um, I realise that I've taken up so much of your time, but it's just, it, it is really so fascinating. And I think it's so important um, that, you know, historians across all different fields, as well as from beyond there, you know, really do kind of pick up this book and take a look at the different ways in which not only do we have to, you know, confront these histories, but also the ways in which, as, as you know, Mani and Auntie have made very clear, weave them into the kinds of, of histories and kind of ethics of histories that, that we're working with. And so, you know, before we finish today and we wrap up, I was wondering if I might press you both a little bit on what you see and what you hope might be the role of historians and history makers today. You know, this book really underlines the concept of ethos, this idea that we have to work at being ethical, um, as well as, you know, a, a whole kind of 
cornucopia of, of Aboriginal concepts um, that are fundamental kind of to rethinking history. So I was wondering if you could just maybe explore a little bit, you know, what you think this means more specifically in terms of society, in terms of what we as, as historians and, and history makers can be doing. Would you like to go first, Auntie, or would you like me to go first? Um, you go first. <laughs> okay. Well, look, Alexandra, I'm, co I'm conscious that, that as history makers, and I always use the word history maker because I'm conscious that I, I, don't I don't just look at the works of people who are professional historians. I look at people who make films. I look at people who write novels. Um, that, that these amazing colleagues sit in a number of tables and they um, are passionate about what they do, that they work for good, uh, that they amplify the voices of people, they find stories, they're bringing them together, they're celebrating, and, and a more diverse story is coming, and that's wonderful. And we sit at some, very t at some big tables actively, so it's not unusual to hear history makers making comment on the nation, on you know whether uh, our political leaders are considering the past enough, whether we're being taught the right histories in schools, what debate there should be. But I'm also conscious that there's some tables that we don't sit at, and I think that's probably one of the messages I think that's important for the book. I would like history makers to be sitting much more at the table uh, in the discussions on artificial intelligence and algorithms and computer science, and that's the focus of the new book that I'm working on, that I really want us at that table because decisions that are being made in algorithms and not just about ethics in general terms. Uh, computers make decisions on the basis of past data. And so there has never been a more important time for history makers to speak up and be in that space. And so I want, I want that to be one of the messages is that's a table that I want us to be at. I want us to feel confident that we should be at the table talking about environmental uh, issues to see ourselves there. And there are so many colleagues doing that. And I want us to be at a table not just talking, but I want us to be at a table listening. And so in Chapter 10 of the book, I've deliberately taken the posture of the listener. So Auntie is not speaking directly in the chapter. It's me recounting back what I've heard as a listener. And that's quite deliberate because I want to really emphasize that if we want to do things better, we want to be better history makers then we sometimes have to sit at the table and not talk and we have to listen and listen not just to what's being said but how it's being said. And then when we, we retell that we check with the person that we've listened to to make sure that we've learned. And so the ultimate message of the book, I hope, is one of ethos, not just that our discipline is shaped by ethos but my own journey is shaped by ethos and it's not over yet. So you can expect there's going to be more books. I'm interested in ethics. And that's the message of the book. It doesn't stop. The work of ethics does not stop. So, Auntie, over to you. No, uh, and ethics in our space is so incredibly important. And to have um, Aboriginal people sitting at the table, I think, is... Um, well, it's happening. We, we know that. But you talk about listening, Marnie. I, I always say that um, you can sit in that big room and we, we speak in that circle and there's a lot, a lot of talking that goes on. And more often than not, there's no listening. And when there is no listening, 
then it becomes a, a fractured story. So what people walk out with are bits and pieces of things. I, I would just say to all, take time. Take time to listen because it is in listening that we learn and we are learning up until the day we die. And I like to think that um, I listen and it has been through listening that I've, um, I've learned so much throughout the course of my life. But I, I think that um, we are in a, a different world now in, say, 2021 where things are not happening from the top down. It comes from the bottom up. So in relation to working with Aboriginal people, communities, it is not about the researchers parachuting themselves in and taking what they want. They are now becoming the listeners and they are listening to those that are willing to sit down and be their teachers. That's So the importance of listening, I just cannot speak that it is it is one of the the most um, most genuine things that you can do because then you get the true histories and then you can take those stories and you can share them and know that it's it's just right well on that very sage um point i think we should wrap up marnie hughes warrington and auntie Anne martin Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. The book is Big and Little History, Sizing Up Ethics in Historiography, and it's published by Routledge in 2021. I'd like to thank you both so much again for being on the show today. Thank you, Alexandra. It's been a huge privilege, and uh, I hope you can all see why I feel so privileged to know Auntie Anne. Thank you. Incredibly honoured to think this old nana gets to sit down with people like Marnie and Alexandra, thank you so much. The pleasure is entirely ours. Have a wonderful day. Thank, thank you. you.